Good morning. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We will be reading verses 9 through Genesis chapter 8, verse 19. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the, fort, on the earth forty days, and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, 
all swarming things that swim, that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month and the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her back into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the, from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the, seventh, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So concludes the reading of God's word. I've, I've lost track. If I tried to give you a guess, it would just be a random number of how many end-of-the-world movies have come out in recent years. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're a fan of these films, but I was thinking about it this week, meditating on this passage, and realized that in some ways, if you've seen one of them, you've seen all of them. What do I mean by that? Well, scene one, everything's going just fine, right? Life is good. Sun's out, it's rosy. Scene two, there's an alien invasion, a natural disaster or some other power of evil threatens to engulf and destroy the entire world. And then of course, about an hour and 40 minutes of no dialogue later, <laughs> my bias is coming out. There's scene three. What's in scene three? Well, scene three is typically, in just the nick of time, a resourceful human being finds a way to avert the disaster, saving himself and the rest of the planet. And typically, all the humble masses who have no special powers of which to speak have no idea that they could have been destroyed. But they don't need to know, right? Because it's just another day's work for your average member of the Justice League. And another 300 million for Marvel. There is an entertainment value to watching fictional movies 
about universal judgment. But as I was meditating on this passage this week, friends, it occurred to me that these films can also have a spiritually deadly effect on your soul. Why do I say that? I I say that because these films, these movies can dull our hearts and our minds to what is not fictional, to what is not make-believe, to what is absolutely real. And, And to put it in very clear black and white terms, I'd say it this way, in the Bible, The judgment of God on the sin of the world is not accompanied by popcorn and soda. This is what it's accompanied by. Revelation 6, 15. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, all the people in those movies that we watch, right? the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's not soda and popcorn, that the the soundtrack to the judgment of God in the Bible is the scream of the damned. And even in hearing me say that, you may be sitting there thinking, well, well, come on, Matthew, be reasonable. What are you trying to scare some children? Are, Are you actually telling me that there's a God in heaven and he's for real? And one day, he's going to hold every human being accountable for how they lived life on this earth. I haven't seen that before. And as far as I'm concerned, that's never happened before. So why should I believe that it will ever happen again? Friend, if you find yourself thinking that, Here's what the Word of God says to you. It has happened before. It has happened before, okay? The story that Peter just read isn't a myth. It's history. And one man and his family lived to tell the tale. Now, now here's where we need to remember Comparison and contrast, okay? What's, what's the message of all the end-of-the-world movies that we tend to watch, these films we watch? Well, I think the message is simple. Deliverance from death is the result of what? Human ingenuity, human gifting, human power, and human fortune. It's called the hero. That is most decisively not the message of Genesis 6 through 8. It's not. Noah didn't survive because he was smart. Noah didn't survive because he had some sort of special power. He didn't survive because he was lucky or he knew the right people. Friends, Noah survived because he was righteous. He was righteous. The central message of these chapters that we read is this, salvation from judgment is the sure reward of righteousness. It's the reward of righteousness. It's the reward of godliness. It's the reward of conformity to the character of our creator in all your words, all your thoughts, and all your deeds. And if you look at verse nine of chapter six, there's a marker here that tells us we're in a new chapter in this book. These are the generations of Noah. And that phrase, these are the generations, we'll see that again and again in the book of Genesis. Just to give you some context, that's a structural marker that basically says, this is what became of someone. 
Okay, so we've seen what? We've seen what became of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2 through 4. We've seen what became of, these are the generations of, Adam in Genesis 5, and we're about to see what became of Noah starting in Genesis 6. And and what we're going to see in these chapters, friends, if, if they teach us anything, in keeping with what I just said a minute ago, it's that salvation is not a gift God gives to the entire world. It's not a universal right. It's the exclusive reward of the righteous. Which means we need to consider really carefully what is it that makes the righteous whom God saves different from the wicked whom God does not save. Hence the first point of this sermon. The obedience of faith separates the righteous from the wicked. The obedience of faith separates the righteous from the wicked. Now, now to understand that, you may be looking at that on the screen behind me thinking, that's a lot of Christian words, and that's precisely why I didn't want to be in church today. I can never understand the pastor. Let me help you understand what I mean by that, okay? And I'm going to do that by asking you a question. If someone asks you to define righteousness, you, what would you say? How would you explain the way it's different than wickedness? Well, I think a lot of people would probably say that A righteous person is a good person, right? And if you ask them, are you a good person, they would probably say something like this, that this is what I think we tend to hear nine times out of ten. On the whole, yeah, I think. I mean, no one's perfect, but but I generally try to do what, what I think is right. Majority response. Of course, the implicit assumption behind that answer, if you think through it, is that anything that person does not think is right is automatically wicked. We could talk about that. But but it's funny how that works. We, We instinctively define righteousness as whatever we presently are, and wickedness as whatever we're presently not, what all those other people are. But that's not how the Bible defines them. Look at verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. What does it say? First thing about Noah. Noah was a righteous man. And now look at the end of the verse. Because the end of the verse helps us know what that means. What's it mean he was righteous? Last sentence in that verse. And Noah walked with God. Okay, so listen to me. This is what I'm saying. Righteousness is not a result of your relationship to other people, okay? Right? A righteous person isn't a person who is better than the people around them. According to the Bible, righteousness is about your relationship with God. A righteous person is a person who walks with God. At a basic level, what's that mean? That means where God goes, you go, And what God says, you say. And what God feels, you feel. And where God doesn't go, and what God doesn't say, you don't go, and you don't say. Walking with God. So how do we know where God is going? You should be asking. How do I know what God is saying? How do I know what God is doing? Well, praise the Lord, he tells us, just like he told Noah. Look at verse 14. He gives Noah commands, instructions. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Then verse 15 through 20, he tells the man exactly what he wants him to do with that ark. And then look at verse 21, he adds the second command. Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. God doesn't leave it a mystery for Noah any more than he leaves it a mystery for us what it means to walk with him found in his commands. And notice how Noah responded. Look at verse 22, chapter 6. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What's that tell us, friend? It reminds us that being a righteous person isn't about being better than the people around you. It's about being a person who walks with God by obeying the word of God. 
That's what righteousness is. That's what it means to be righteous. A righteous person is a person who walks with God by obeying God's word in every area of life. That's why in verse 9, if you look back there, God also says that Noah was blameless in his generation. That doesn't mean Noah was sinless. Okay? It simply means Noah was wholeheartedly committed to doing the will of God in every area of his life. No exceptions. And that, that refrain, if you look back at verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded him, that commanded him, that gets repeated over and over and over again in chapter 7. So chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 9. All the animals went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. Chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Now, as Christians, we often speak of righteousness as a gift that God gives to us through faith in Christ. And so we sing songs like what? But before the throne of God above. And we glory in Jesus as our perfect, spotless righteousness. And and we rejoice that it's the righteousness that God freely credits to our account in Christ by which we are justified. We're declared to be right with God in the courtroom of heaven. It's the merit of Jesus' obedience and his life and death that that ensures our welcome before the throne of God. And, And all of that is gloriously true. Praise be to the Lord. But... I hope you felt this coming. That kind of judicial righteousness is not the kind of righteousness in view in Genesis 6, verse 9. Nor is it the kind of righteousness in view in Genesis 7, verse 1, when the Lord says to Noah, look at the first verse of chapter 7 with me. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. What's God talking about there? When he says, Noah, I've seen that you are righteous, he's saying, Noah, listen, there's an ethical righteousness that marks your life. It was Noah's faithfulness to obey the word of God that that set him apart as a righteous man in the midst of a corrupt generation. It's ethical righteousness that's in view. And, And in that regard, Noah couldn't have been more different than the people around him. So look at chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So let's not miss the connection here, okay? If it's Noah's obedience that made him righteous, what is it that makes everybody around him corrupt? Disobedience. Right, where Noah was faithful to do all that God commanded, all the people around him refused to do what God had commanded. So instead of loving their neighbor and building them up, they did violence to their neighbor, not just physical, but verbal, and they tore them down. And chapter 6 reminds us that, more than anything else, the righteous are those who obey God's word. And the wicked are those who disobey God's word. So what difference does that make? Well, among many applications, here's one. Friend, if you think you're a Christian, if you think that you're walking with God merely because of what you say you believe about Jesus, you are terribly deceived. That's what it means. Because what identifies you or disqualifies you as a genuine Christian, the the basis on which the people around you should affirm the authenticity of your faith or question the authenticity of your faith isn't what you say you believe about Jesus in your head, but whether you are obeying Jesus in your life. That's the point. And why do I say that? I say that because I love you and because there's no category in the Bible for someone being righteous, for someone being right with God who is not obeying God. Who's not actively fighting to follow him and walk with him in in every area of life. If you're not doing that, if you're not living a life of obedience to the word of God, friend, you are not righteous. You're wicked. 
And there's no middle ground. I mean, that's what's so sobering about this, right? That there's only two groups of people in Noah's day. And, and there are still only two groups of people in our own day. Either you are obeying the commands of God and you are righteous, or you are disobeying the commands of God and you are wicked. And if you say to yourself, Matthew, trust me, despite all this disobedience in my life, I know in the depth of my heart that I still have faith in God. We're still tight. We're still good. Well, I would say this to you. A faith that does not express itself in a life of wholehearted obedience to the word of God is not a genuine faith. James 2.17, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is what? Dead. It's not on life support. It's not getting started. It's not waiting to accept Jesus as Lord. It's dead. It's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Insert, congratulations. Even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, what sets apart the righteous from the wicked, what separates the righteous from the wicked is not that the righteous look at all the other people and say, I think I'm a better person. What separates them is the obedience of faith. The righteous man or woman is a woman whose faith compels him or her to obey the word of God. Remember that. Don't presume that simply because you're sitting in church that you're righteous. You have to evaluate your life in light of God's word and ask and answer, are you obeying all that God has commanded or, or are you toying with sin? Are you, are you flirting with temptation? Are you saying, you know what? I want to be kind of tight with the church and the people of God, but I also want to have my little thing on the side over here with sin. If that's you, you're not righteous. You're wicked and you need to be honest. It's the obedience of faith that separates the righteous from the wicked. Point number two, the Lord will not fail to destroy the wicked. Okay, it's the obedience of faith that separates the righteous from the wicked. Now, why is that separation important? Because there's something about to happen to each of these groups, okay? And speaking of the first group, the wicked, the Lord will not fail to destroy the wicked. Now, thinking about this, I'm well aware that in, in reading and maybe even you this morning listening to this passage, we tend to get hung up on a whole lot of pragmatic details, right? Let's just be honest about that. So, so we want to know things like, how did all those animals know to enter the ark? How did all those animals fit in a boat that's roughly 450 feet long? What Was the flood truly universal or did it simply destroy all the regions of the world where man was currently living in at that time? We, we could just go on and on and on and the, the scientific chemistry major part of me could give you a very long list. But I will say this, though those are good questions, those are not the questions that Genesis was primarily written to answer. And if we want to read God's word with integrity, we need to let it answer the questions it is trying to answer and not force it to answer all the questions we wish it would answer. Hear that. So what is Genesis saying here? What is God saying here in the way this story is presented to us? Well, first I'd remind you of this. Nothing in the Bible is mere history. Nothing in the Bible is mere history. It's historical. It is historical. And if you look at Genesis 7, 11, the precise date that we're given in which the flood began indicates we're talking about history here. But it's not mere history. It's history with a purpose. It's history with a goal, with an intent. And every part of God's word is given to us by God with a divinely intended goal or purpose or end in mind. And one of those ends in these chapters, which are no exception to the rule, is to provide us a sober warning. What's the sober warning? You cannot sin against the Lord and get away with it. 
You can't sin against the Lord and get away with it. That's the warning. Why not? Because the Lord will not fail to destroy the wicked. I think these chapters teach us, and I'll move through this quickly, at least four things about the judgment of God on the wickedness of man. Okay, so follow along with me here, friends. Just a quick survey. First, the judgment of God is just. It's just. Okay, if you look at verse 12, back in chapter six, there's a connection here with verse 13 I don't want us to miss. Okay, at the end of verse 12, we read what? For all flesh had corrupted or ruined their way on the earth. And in verse 13, God says to Noah, behold, I will destroy or ruin them with the earth. Okay, the, the verbal root behind that that we translate in verse 12 as corrupted and in verse 13 as destroy in the original language is exactly the same. What's that tell us? What well, tells us that the judgment of God is not capricious. He's not flying off the handle. It's not an overreaction. In other words, the destruction that the wicked have wrought, that very destruction, nothing more, nothing less, is coming back on their own head. They're getting exactly what they deserve. It's just. Second, the judgment of God is certain. Look at verse 13, chapter 6 again. Notice God says to Noah that destroying the wicked is what he has determined to do. He's determined it. Okay, so in Genesis 7, 4, just to give some examples, the Lord promises that in seven days the flood would begin. And in Genesis 7, 10, what happens? Seven days later, the flood begins. In Genesis 7, 4, the Lord promises that he will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And Genesis 7, 12, the rain falls on the earth for what? 40 days and 40 nights. In Genesis 6, 17, God says, Everything that's on the earth shall die. And in Genesis 7:22, we read, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. What's the point? The point is that the certainty of God's judgment is guaranteed by the reliability of God's word. That's the point. It's just, it's certain. Third, the judgment of God is sudden. It's sudden. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. Do you know what that's a picture of? That's the exact opposite of what God did back in Genesis 1 when he separated the waters that were above from the waters that were below. It's a picture of uncreation. It's the exact opposite. And evidently, no one else but Noah saw that judgment coming. Why do I say that? Because of Luke 17, 27. Jesus says, speaking of that day, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the very day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was sudden. Fourth, the judgment of God is decisive. Look at chapter seven, verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. I mean, just imagine living through that, friend. Again, because of all the movies we watch in so many ways, we think that's cool special effects. It's not special effects. It's real. And I imagine that some of them who'd been laughing at Noah when they saw the rain coming down and waters begin to rise thought, huh, Maybe that crazy guy wasn't kidding. Hey, uh, why, why don't we move to higher ground? Then you know what happened when they moved to higher ground? The waters kept coming. And the higher they walked, the higher the waters came. And the further they ran, the further the waters came. 
until maybe one or two people were standing on the highest point they could climb and they were engulfed by the judgment of God. Three times in these verses we read, the waters prevailed. The waters prevailed. The waters prevailed. What does that water represent, friend? That water represents the judgment of Almighty God. And what is that saying to you? Friend, it's saying that if you are a sinner, you will not prevail against the Lord. It is the Lord who will prevail against you. There's no place you can hide. There's no place you can get away. There's no place you can escape. The Lord will not fail to destroy the wicked and his judgment upon you will be just, certain, sudden, and decisive. Why do I say that? Back to what Jesus says. Luke 17, 26, he warns you, friend, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. In the days when Christ Jesus returns to, to judge the living and the dead. Now, now listen, in 2 Peter 3, he deals with our objection, right? It's almost like God can hear us objecting to all that. And he says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? Show me. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. What fact? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished and by the same word. The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Hear God saying that to you this morning, friend. Do not overlook this one fact. What's the fact I must not overlook? That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You say, Williams, I can't believe in that coming day of judgment because I haven't seen it yet. You know what God says? You haven't seen it yet because I am being merciful to you. You say, Williams, I can't believe in that day of judgment because I've never watched it go down before. God says to you, you don't want to watch it go down unless you are safe in the rock of Jesus Christ. Peter urges you to repent because he knows something about the Lord. And it's something that Noah experienced firsthand. And his experience wasn't simply that God will not fail to judge the wicked. It was also point number three, God will not fail to rescue the righteous. The Lord will not fail to rescue the righteous. Think about it. Why did God choose Noah, of all people, to warn him about the coming flood? There's no lottery going on. There's no indication that you know, Noah applied for a flood waiver and the little pinball machine came out and doop, nine, six, seven, eight, four, Noah! Yeah. No. Why did God choose to rescue Noah and his family out of all the families on the earth? Look at Genesis 7, verse 1. This is so important, friends. Then the Lord said to Noah, Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Is that familiar? Okay, Noah's deliverance was the reward of Noah's righteousness. He obeyed God, he walked with God, he did all that God commanded him, and therefore, God rescued him. Now, to those of you that are sitting in your seats, because I know you well enough to know this, thinking, does that mean, Williams, that Noah merited his salvation by virtue of his good works? 
I say to you, friend, absolutely not. And Bruce Waltke clarifies this dynamic in Noah's life when he writes this. Look look at these words. Noah's righteousness is not a work to gain merit with God, but it is the outcome of his faith in God. It wasn't a work to gain or extract or arm wrestle. You've got to rescue me because I'm obeying you. No, it was the overflow of his faith in God. What does that mean? It means that the ultimate reason Noah obeyed God was because Noah trusted God. He trusted God. His his obedience was, was fueled by faith. Faith was the gas in the car of his obedience. And it compelled his obedience and, and his obedience was an expression of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What does that teach us, friends? Listen very carefully. It teaches us that saving faith is not a faith absent obedience. Saving faith is a faith faith that is expressed through obedience. Always. Noah's faith wasn't passive. It wasn't a get out of jail free card when I die and that's cool because I can do whatever I want now. It was active. It was obedient. And, And Hebrews says that it was his faith, his reverent fear of the Lord that motivated him to construct the ark. I'll say it very simply. If Noah had not obeyed, if he had not constructed the ark, he would not have been saved. True? If he hadn't obeyed, he wouldn't have been saved. What's that mean? It means that the path of obedience to God's commands marks out the only path of salvation. You will not find a path of salvation, a path to being made right with God, that is not marked out and defined and characterized by wholehearted, life-encompassing, unending obedience to the word of God. Obedience marks out the path of faith. So think of it this way. God didn't just rescue Noah because of his obedience. He rescued Noah through his obedience. And friend, God wants to do the same thing in your life today. If if, if you want God to preserve you, if you want God to deliver you, then you have to obey him. And he'll only do those things for you. He'll only preserve you. He'll only deliver you if you're willing to obey him. In fact, your faithful actions of obedience are the very means by which our faithful God will preserve you and will deliver you. So for example, does faith wait around for God to take your sexual lust away? Still praying. One day, still hoping. No change yet, still praying. No, no. Faith obeys the Lord, flee sexual immorality, and it gets rid of your smartphone if you need to. It obeys. Does this faith, faith, wait around for God to fix your marriage? No, faith chooses the path of humility and ask for counsel. Does faith merely ask God to take away my fears and anxieties. I'm just so fearful. I never really believe him, but still praying one day if he ever feels like doing it, maybe it'll happen. No, no. Faith compels us to fix our mind on the promises of God and meditate on his word until it has its divinely intended effect in our heart. God rescued Noah and his family because Noah was righteous. His life was characterized by the obedience of faith. But make no mistake, friend, make no mistake, it was ultimately the Lord who warned him, right? It was the Lord who preserved him and and it was the Lord who finally delivered him. Look back at chapter six, verse 18. What does God say? Does God say, let us establish a covenant with each other where you do one part and I make up the rest? 
No, he says what? Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. You know what that tells us, friend? That says that a covenant-keeping God is the ultimate author of your salvation. And a covenant-keeping God is the one who initiates your salvation and will ultimately complete your salvation. But he will not save you unless you are willing to obey him. And he will preserve you and keep you through your willingness to obey him. And guess what else? He will give you the willingness to obey him. Your obedience is necessary. It is essential. You will not be saved without it. And yet our obedience is never the basis, the foundation, or the ultimate assurance of our salvation. Hear that. You know what happens? I love this. You know what happens in the other flood stories? If you read history from other Mesopotamian civilizations around this time, lots of other people had their own flood story. You know what happens in all of them? The hero of the story closes the door himself. Look at Genesis 7, 16. What does it tell us? It was the Lord who shut Noah in. Noah didn't close the door. God closed the door. Why? Why? Because God wanted to teach Noah the same thing that he wants to teach us, friends. It is the sovereign grace of God that ultimately guarantees our salvation. If Noah hadn't obeyed, he wouldn't have been saved. But it was not Noah's obedience that ultimately guaranteed his salvation. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If the Lord did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Amen. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's the Lord's doing. And so at just the right time, in just the right way, the same God that unleashed the waters of the flood, restrained the waters of the flood, enabling Noah to leave the ark exactly one year and 11 days after he entered it. And the reason for the deliverance is found in chapter eight, verse one. Look there. This is why God restrained the flood eventually. But God remembered Noah. That's one of those like, can we just take a knee and stop and think about that? God God didn't forget Noah. God didn't overlook Noah. He didn't lose sight of him. He, He remembered his promise to Noah. He remembered the word that he had spoken to him. He remembered his covenant and he kept his word. Isaiah 49 verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Brothers and sisters, the Lord brought Noah safely through the waters of judgment. And if you are trusting Jesus Christ as your savior, you know what the Lord Jesus is gonna do for you? He is gonna bring you safely through the waters of judgment that are coming on that final day. That's his promise to you. He'll do the exact same thing. John 10, verse nine. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why do I read that verse? Why do I remind you that though his obedience was necessary and the Lord will not fail to rescue the righteous, that ultimately it was the sovereign grace of God that guaranteed his salvation? Why do I make a big point of that? It's because I care about you. And I know that some of you are in situations right now where you are fighting really hard to walk in righteousness. You've chosen to do the right thing, to obey the Lord, but you're still suffering. You're still struggling. And some of you are thinking, maybe even right now, Lord, is this whole following you thing really worth it? I mean, I feel like the more I try to obey you, the worse things get. Whereas Joe over here could care less about your word and he's making six figures. 
I'm really trying to obey you in my marriage, and yet it's just on the rocks. And yet Sue over here could care less about what you think about her marriage, and she says it's never been better. What do you do with that? What do you do when you find yourself wondering, are you really going to rescue the righteous? Will you do what King David did in Psalm 17? In that moment, friend, when you feel that, you lift your gaze away from the horizon of this world and you fix your eyes on the hope of heaven. Listen. As for me, David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with their likeness. David knew something. He knew that when the wicked die, their hope perishes. But when the righteous die, their hope is immediately fulfilled. He knew that. And how do, how do we ultimately know that? Well, we know that because of what we celebrated two weeks ago, right? Jesus didn't remain in the grave. He was crushed by the divine justice of God. He was raised by the divine justice of God. And because he rose, we too will rise. So friend, even if you die a terrible death in this world, if you are in Christ, if you are righteous, you can know this, you will rise with God in the world to come. The Lord will not fail to rescue the righteous. How do we know that? Because he vindicated Jesus Christ. Because he vindicated his righteous son. He will not fail to vindicate all who are righteous because of him. This is what we have to remember. Salvation from judgment is the sure reward of righteousness. So we don't lose heart. When following Jesus is hard, we remember that it's the obedience of faith that separates the righteous from the wicked. We remember God will not fail to destroy the wicked and God will not fail to rescue the righteous. And for those two reasons, friends, we refuse for our whole life ever stop obeying the Lord. That's what we do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that as you have graciously reminded us today of the necessity of obedience and you have comforted us with a promise that those who are righteous, those who are following you will not fail to be rescued just as you rescued Noah. I pray, Father, that you would give us now as we sing this song a greater fear of you for these are sobering words and at the same time a greater confidence in you that we're following you has been hard. We're where the road of righteousness has been difficult, that you will not fail in your time, in your right way, even if we must wait for glory to bring our rescue to pass. Increase our faith and make us faithful, I pray. We want to be righteous in this generation. Not so that people are impressed with us, but so they're amazed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.